I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the 12th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 12. We're starting to get back into a rhythm of doing Jeremiah on the Sunday evenings. And um, we've come into this section in chapter 12. God willing, we'll get through the entirety, uh, at least the remainder of chapter 12 this evening. And uh, it might be good to read this section first. Um, just again, I'll give you something of the context, remind you that in chapter 11, it began with God's charge against the nation of Judah, that they had broken covenant with him, and um, their uh, failure to render loyalty and allegiance and covenant obedience, and they're bowing before the idols of the nations, uh, engaging in... in uh, in alliances with foreign nations, uh, the, the whole list of uh, markers that they were not an apostate, an apostate nation uh, who's drifted far away from God and far away from uh, his plans and purposes for a people um, he is in covenant with. And it's in the face of that that um, Jeremiah sees his own position as a prophet of the Lord amongst an apostate people. And he is under the gun from even the residents of his own hometown in Anathoth. They're plotting to take away his life. And he gives himself to lament, to complaint before the Lord. Now we looked at that complaint last week and looked to see that in a sense it was a, a model of how laments should be expressed in the way of freedom to lay before the Lord your burdens and concerns your complaints, the thought, the inner, the inner recesses of the heart to, to bring that forward in his presence. God gives us that freedom to do that and then to do it in faith. And then when God gives reply, it's a reply that oftentimes calls upon us to recognize that many times our complaints are, well, around small stuff and the really greater problems or troubles or afflictions they will meet us in the in the future, and that if we've grown weary, just um, running with footmen, running a race with other people, well, when we're called upon to do more than horses or those that we contend against, uh, where, where 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 will we be then, if um, if we're having problems in the in a safe land? Uh, what will you do when the Jordan overflows? What will you do? when even greater troubles come. And God's indicating to Jeremiah something even greater than the troubles you now experience will, will come. The Babylonian uh, uh, chariots have not yet descended. They will. It's imminent. But this invasion has not yet come. And uh, what are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? So in a sense, it's a call to a man who has the freedom to express his heart before the Lord in faith to greater fortitude to greater determination to uh, trust God for whatever is to come. God doesn't say you're going to be um, evading the problem. Uh, God's not going to lift us out of difficulties, but he will go with us through the difficulties. And uh, that's God's consolation uh, to his servant. But when we pick up the reading in verse 7, uh, it seems to me there's even a greater uh, responsiveness of the Lord to Jeremiah's concerns and also a further expression of God's determination to uh, act in wrath and justice against 
a covenant-breaking people, and yet there's still, uh, and it's, it's kind of unique in Jeremiah that uh, there'll be a sustained picture of divine wrath, and uh, so soon, as you find it here, there is a, a more positive note. Usually it's just sustained trouble, 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 and then you get to chapter 25, and then things start to get a little bit rosier. But right here, there is also a picture of grace, there's a picture of divine uh, uh, mercy expressed, and some picture of return to the Lord and a recovery and even an expansion of his people in terms of the bringing in of uh, the nations that are around Judah, the neighboring nations. Um, so it's an interesting passage, and uh, let's, let's read it. Uh, verse 7 says, I have forsaken my house, I have abandoned my heritage, I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair, hyena's lair? And uh, some of your translations might indicate something different. Uh, the idea of a hyena's lair comes really from the Greek translation in the Septuagint that translates this a hyena's lair. It's more likely that Jeremiah is referring to some form of a bird, a bird of prey or a speckled bird or a bird of variegated plumage. Or, uh, I think uh, Calvin just calls it a strange bird. <laughs> it's a strange bird is being spoken of here. And my heritage is like um, this kind of strange bird or this bird of variegated plumage and are the birds of prey against her all around so uh, and uh, some of the translations might even think that the, the different uh, plumage or the different colored bird is a blood splattered bird that's another possibility and if so the blood spattered bird then has the birds of prey against her all around the uh, they Look upon that as uh, you know, fresh meat, as, as they are vultures for birds, birds of prey. Uh, go assemble all the wild beasts. So you start out with a lion, you go to a bird, you go to birds of prey, and you back to wild beasts at the end in verse 9. Go assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation, desolate, it warns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours, and from one end of the land to the other, no flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns, and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. And so the surrounding nations. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, that they shall be built up in the midst of my people. 
Verse 17 of chapter 12 of Jeremiah, But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly plug it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. And Michael just Philip just joined us on Zoom, and I had to make certain that the, um, the speaker was working, which is why I had a bit divided attention at the end of that reading. Um, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. And so let's come to the 12th verse of the 12th chapter, I'm sorry, the 7th verse of the 12th chapter of the book of uh, Jeremiah. There's a sense in which the words of the Lord, the words of Yahweh, they really begin here at 12.7 and are sustained really throughout the next couple of chapters. I think it's in chapter 15 that again we hear Jeremiah speak in his own voice. And again, he speaks a lot in his own voice. It's a very autobiographical um, prophet in the sense we tend to know more about Jeremiah and his thoughts and his reactions and his troubles and his laments than any other prophet. They tend not to speak in that way. Jeremiah gives us an abundance of that sort of material. But here it is the voice of Yahweh speaking in a sustained fashion and speaking words of judgment once again. Uh, it's the people again have broken the covenant. They're covenant-breaking people. And as uh, the Lord had already told him not to cry on behalf of his people, the judgment is certain, the judgment is sure. Uh, he's decreed disaster against the nation for the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, making offerings to Baal, provoking the Lord to anger. Uh, the Babylonian siege is imminent and the destruction is not going to be averted. And Jeremiah, again, his response is his own troubles, his own place within that whole scenario of a nation in apostasy against God. They have put the guns upon God's prophet. Their true intent is to violate Yahweh's covenant. They're not obedient to him. They have uh, broken the bonds of allegiance to him, but they're taking it out on his prophet. And Jeremiah feels the weight of that, and he feels the pain of that. And so he makes his complaint in chapter 11, into chapter 12, that the men of Anathoth are the, seeking uh, to uh, destroy me. They are looking to uh, put me to death, people of my own town. And then, Lord, where are you in the face of all of this wickedness that's going on with the righteous suffering, the wicked, they're prospering. Uh, where's uh, your justice? And... Um, Again, God's response to him is not a pleasant one in a sense. It really is a reproof of Jeremiah, maybe in terms of his own uh, failure to be more oriented around, well, how is all this wickedness and rebellion uh, impacting the nation rather than me? Impacting the God whom we serve rather than me? There's a sense in which he does look upon himself with his own troubles, his own uh, problems, his own complaints, his own wrestlings with uh, divine providence. And um, God says, if you can't hack it now, what, what about then? And you need to man up. You really need to engage in some measure of fortitude. And that can, that can sound rather harsh. That can sound rather uh, <laughs> sounding a note that, uh, well, you would hope that too often we wouldn't hear from God that way. Now, sometimes God has to speak to us that way because we need to be held accountable and sometimes we need that stern word. But it is an interesting thing that right 
the next words that are spoken are words that seek that seem to be responsive to Jeremiah's pain rather than his failures. Jeremiah, you feel pain. I get it. I understand it. This is a sense in which the Lord feels pain as well. Now, of course, that's metaphoric. God's above the strife of human pain. He doesn't experience pain. He is the ever-blessed God. And yet, this matter of the apostasy of this nation, this breaking of the, the covenant, remember when he speaks of the broken covenant in chapter 31, he says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the wilderness, which my covenant they break, though I was a husband to them. I was a husband to them. Jeremiah, at best, they're your countrymen. At best, they're the residents of your home city. But I was a husband to them. And I'm the jilted lover. I'm the one that they have rebelled against in a way of abandoning covenant fidelity and loyalty with me. And I have a personal investment in them. God has a personal investment in his people. Look at the personal pronouns that are used. I have forsaken my house. It's my house I have forsaken. Now, exactly what the house is that's being referred to. Sometimes a house can be a, a people, um, the house of, of Israel, the house of Jacob. Um, but oftentimes it's referring to the temple. It's likely in the light of the other terminology that's used, that the house that's being referred to is the, is the temple. Again, remember that Jeremiah, part of his prophecies have been at a time when there's been a taking away into captivity of a certain proportion of the people already. Remember, there was not just one exile. There was the exile that took place when Daniel and his friends were taken off into Babylon and Ezekiel was taken off into captivity with the folks that came to the uh, Brook Kirith, um, the, the Kyber Canal, I'm sorry, the Kyber Canal. Brook Kirith was Elijah. I'm getting my biblical references all muddled <laughs> lately. But um, anyway, um, and remember it was some years in the future when Ezekiel began his ministry that uh, the whole matter of the destruction of Judah would take place. And remember in vision he sees what's going to occur. And he sees that the transgression of the people in the house of God was of such great a proportion that God mounted the chariot that was guided by the cherubim and he abandoned the temple. He forsook the temple and he went off into the east over the Mount of Olives and eventually that's the same vision of the Lord leaving the temple in his chariot that he sees coming to him in, in, by, the, by, the, uh, by the Kiber Canal. So um, it may be that forsaking of the house, God actually leaving his glory, abandoning the temple because the sins of the nation were that great. They're bringing in profanation and bringing in that which brought defilement to God's house was so great that God simply forsook it. And of course, that's meant that the whole section beginning in chapter 7 is the transgressions that they were guilty of with respect to the temple and its worship. So God says, I've forsaken my house. 
It was my dwelling. It was my place of residence, my palatial estate in, 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 in Judah, where my people came to worship me, where I had had my throne, uh, earthly speaking, in my house in, in, on Mount Zion. But then it's also he abandoned his heritage. Again, it's my heritage. And the heritage here likely is speaking of the inheritance of the land. The land that the people were to inherit. inherit. Again, sometimes the language can speak of more than one reality. Sometimes the Lord's heritage is his people. But I think in the light of what comes next, we might think in terms of the temple being the reference to the house. We might think of the land being God abandoning his heritage. He's abandoning the land that he promised to the nation as he uproots them and removes them from his heritage, his land. And then I've given the beloved of my soul into the hand of my enemies. And the beloved of my soul is likely the people. So all of these things, precious to the heart of God, God says, I have given up, I've forsaken, I have abandoned, I've given up the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Jeremiah, what have you experienced? Anything like the loss that God experiences? Do you feel great loss? You feel great concern? You pour out your heart and lament before me? Well, I am a God that enters into the reality of what pain is like because I experience it myself. Uh, I, I get it. I understand it. And so I am empathetic. I am sympathetic. I enter in to your pain, Jeremiah. And so there is the sense in which uh, I believe in these words, um, God is speaking responsively to Jeremiah and Jeremiah's complaint. Jeremiah's sense of loss. What Jeremiah sees himself and his nation as losing, God says that's nothing compared to the loss I experience and feel. I think that's what's bound up in these words. It's a very powerful image that the Lord is expressing of his own loss and hence empathy with those who face and experience loss. And then as he reflects upon his heritage, and again the personal pronouns is there, God has invested himself in these realities of temple, of land, of people. And now my heritage could be land, likely people, rebellious people. Again, these words are fluid. Uh, They don't always have just one meaning. I think in the context of verse 7, I I could see a distinction. You move from temple, you move into land, you move into people. But then heritage also can be people in in and of itself. But it's become to me like a lion in the forest. We're entering into the uh, images that God gives of uh, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And you have to ask yourself, how have the people become like the simile, like a lion in the forest? Well, you know, I think if you get a lion in the forest, let him stay there and I'll stay away. As long as the lion stays in the forest, I'm cool. Let him dwell in his own lair, far away from human habitation. But Israel himself has become like a lion in the forest. You wouldn't want to go anywhere near this dangerous beast because this nation has started to roar. This nation has begun to lift up their voices in a way that it is against me. She, this lion in the forest, has roared. 
This lion in the forest has lifted up her voice, bellowing with loud noises and loud protestations and loud words of reviling against the God of heaven. She's lifted up her voice against me. She's charged me with evil. She's charged me with covenant unfaithfulness. Again, that's what people do. God hasn't kept his bargain with me. He made no such bargain with you. You think you're going to tie God to some bargain you want to tie him to? Well, what right have you to do that? And we tend to protest against God. And we deny his being. We deny his goodness. We deny his providence. We lift up our voice against him. And God said those that are in the business of lifting up their voice against him are those whom he cannot tolerate. There is a loathing in his soul. There is a hateful response. Therefore, he says, I hate her. Now we tend to take hate and love and make them opposites. In the Hebrew, it's it's not really that way. Um, Again, a lot of times love is an expression not so much of of a feeling or of emotion, but it's an expression of a commitment. It's an expression of an intense commitment and longing to meet the, the people we love and to minister to the needs of the people that we love. In other words, love very often is almost synonymous with caring. I, I love you. That means I care about you. My heart is toward you. My soul is for you. I, I want to see your good. And the opposite, of, in the sense of, of that, if you think of hatred, is I don't care. I, I don't simply, I don't care. I'm going to leave you to yourself. I'm going to simply abandon you. And I think that's more the picture of what God's saying. Rather than his soul being all roiled up in a, in a snit against them, he's just saying, that's it. Hands off. The care with which I cared. The love that I showed. The involvement that I had. No longer will be a reality. Because you are not safe to go near. As you bellow out and roar as a lion against the God of heaven and earth. And then he uses another imagery, which is, in verse 9, is my heritage to me. And the translation here in the ESV is a hyena's, a hyena's lair. And it's likely not a hyena that's being spoken of. I mentioned before, that is how it gets translated in the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But the Hebrew really is talking about a bird, a bird of some sort. And it would seem that it's a bird of some kind of distinctive color, uh, either a variated, very variegated color like a peacock. Uh, and, uh, you know, a peacock attracts attention. Um, I don't know, somebody was making some strange reference to, uh... no, I don't want to get into the male or female peacock, but he was trying to bring in something. It was the exact opposite. This is the one with all the plumage. That's the, that's the male, right? It's not the female? Or is it the other way around? I forget. Anyway, we'll move on. It could be something like that. It, it attracts attention. And in attracting attention, it attracts attention of all of the vultures, all of the... Uh, birds that devour or it could be that the color that's being spoken of is is blood it's a wounded bird 
Uh, Calvin, as I mentioned in the reading, he just takes a position, it's a strange bird. I just don't know what kind of bird it is. But it is a strange bird. And this strange bird is a bird that has the birds of prey against her all around. And that does seem to be the picture, in terms of what follows, of all the surrounding nations. Remember, in a lot of the prophets, there's always the word that's given to the nations. The oracles against the nations. The OAN, OANs, the oracles against the nations. And the, uh, Jeremiah has it later on in his prophecy. Uh, um, Ezekiel had it in his prophecy. And maybe you remember that uh, it's usually in the direction that goes from uh, north east all the way around to the south and then ends up in Tyre is the oracles how they go and it's the nations that surround Israel and Judah who see the invasions from Assyria and from Babylon and they're saying oh goody here's our opportunity we're now going to see, see our opportunity to make that land, which is a land that serves as a land bridge into Egypt, uh, uh, great for trade, great for our interests, uh, as they no longer have a national identity, a power to stop us at any kind of, let's say, border, or to protest against our utilization of their land because it's their property, now we're just going to have a free run. And so the people of Tyre and their merchants are all applauding. The people over in Edom, the sons of Esau, they're just saying, oh, goody, goody, the Babylonians are really uh, taking them to task. What does that mean? That means Lieberstrom. That means that's the German word for the room to live in. We're going to expand. We're going to get into Austria. We're going to get into all the regions where our people can now have Lebensraum. And that's what they're thinking. They're thinking of their own national expansion at the expense of the, of the, of the uh, people of Judah. And uh, so they were like, that's what his heritage became like. It became like a, a bloody bird with the birds of prey all coming around to feast. All coming around to say, oh, this is all for our good and our benefit and our advantage. So you have the wild beasts that they're roaring against God. And now they're, looked, they're pictured as the bird that is now the victim of the birds of prey all around. And God says in the midst of that, the bellowing of his people against him, the people being made a prey to the surrounding nation, God says, my decree is clear, go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour that lion, bring them to devour this nation. Uh, again, this nation has broken covenant with God. Whatever the interests of the surrounding nations might be, God's interest is to bring the curses of the covenant upon them for their covenant disobedience. He's going to be faithful to his word. And then God gives further expansion and further definition uh, to what he's about to do. Uh, there's the mention in chapter 10 of the many shepherds. And it's interesting how filled with imagery th this passage is. Um, lions in the forest, birds of prey, um, now shepherds uh, destroying the vineyard. And what the reference to this is, it, it, again, it, it's not super clear. In chapter 23, the shepherds are the shepherds of Israel. 
They're the leaders of the nation that have feasted upon the nation for their own benefit. They haven't visited the people to serve them and to minister to them. They've not been faithful shepherds. They've been looking to fleece the sheep and looking to devour the sheep. And God says, I'm going to raise up shepherds after my own heart. Um, it may be the leaders of the nation who have led them astray that the Lord has in view. But oftentimes shepherds just means king. Leaders. It could be the kings of the nation. It could be king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his generals who are those who are coming now to destroy God's vineyard. But the decree is, is clear. There's going to be destruction. Um, the kings of the earth who come to destroy the nation have trampled down my portion. Or it could be they've done it because these leaders of the people. They've taken their share of what they wanted. Uh, and now they're going to be judged. And now they're going to be trampled under. Um, and they've made my pleasant portion into a desolate wilderness, an uninhabitable land. This land that flowed with milk and honey, this land that God had a special providence over, a special protection with respect to. Now these foreign nations are going to come to devour them. A desolation is going to result. There's not going to be a fit place to live once all the war gets done and all the devastation gets done and all the people get taken away and plucked up out of the land. They, that is the leaders of the nation, for the, because of their sins, or the leaders of the, of the foreign nations because of their military might and power, they've made the land, God's land, God's heritage, God's people, they've made it to be a desolation. It's a desolation. And the result is it mourns to me. Didn't mourn over their sins. Never mourned over their unfaithfulness. Never mourned over their rebellion, their apostasies, their idolatries. But now they're mourning. Now they're, they're, they're crying to me in their pain, in their agony. The whole land is made desolate. No man lays it to heart. Well, they lay it to heart that they've been dislocated. They lay it to heart that they've been troubled. They lay it to heart that they've experienced loss. But does anybody really lay, lay it to heart that this is God's wife who's now been divorced, given a bill of divorcement, so that these troubles come upon them because of their unfaithfulness to God? that in what has occurred, the greatest loser is the God who made this nation his nation, that made this nation his house, his heritage, his beloved. He's the one who's experienced the greatest loss of all. Upon Verse 12, Upon the bare heights in the desert destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours. I didn't look it up. I was thinking of looking it up, but at least in terms of my own recollection of the Old Testament, there's only one time I remember the sword of the Lord being spoken of. And you know where that is? Joshua. Gideon. Gideon, right. Yeah, well, Joshua saw the man with the sword, yeah, yeah. Uh, who fought, who do you fight, who are you, are you for them or for, or are you for us? He says, uh, I, I'm, I'm the captain of, of the Lord's army. I, I fight in the name of the Lord. So, yeah, you're right. But uh, Gideon does come later in history, so the last time would be the sword of the Lord and Gideon. <laughs> Gideon's dream as uh, the uh, dream of the destruct, 
through the destruction of the Midianites, it's seen to be God fighting against the enemies of his people, God bearing the sword of his vengeance, God, God bearing the sword that lays low the adversary, fighting with his people and for his people. Now the sword is lifted up against his people. God is actively fighting against his people. From one end of the land to the other, no flesh has peace. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is no shalom. And it's not just that there is no peace in the sense of uh, a military peace, but there is just no well-being to be found anywhere. There is nothing that gives just any hope of a of a, of, a, of a bright future just in what we see with our eyes from one end of the land to the other there's just no, nothing that just bears any thing that is speaking of good and hopefulness and well-being verse 13 could speak of their harvest I mean the Babylonians weren't concerned well is it harvest season for the Israelites or harvest season for the people of Judah they're taking in their crops well we want them to be able to take it in and reap it and have plenty to eat they didn't care about that they may have sown wheat and they've reaped thorns they went out in the harvest and sowed their fields but now they've been destroyed or it could be the principle that you reap what you sow that this is the harvest of evil because they've sown the seeds of evil. They've sown the seeds of sin and they reap the harvest of judgment because of their sin. They've tired themselves out, but they profited nothing. All their labor comes to nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. There's nothing to be happy about. There's no voice of the bride or the bridegroom. There's no happiness in the bringing in of harvests. There's just only despair only despair because again God is fighting against his people not with and for his people and so what begins with this sense of um, God's responsiveness to Jeremiah and his pain by saying I have lost more than you um, it then moves into this matter of God's rage against the sins of his people his committing them to this judgment that he's bringing through the Babylonian armies, through the Babylonian war machine, uh, to bring devastation to the land because of the sins and the transgressions of um, the people. So, it's a dismal picture when you come to the end of verse 13, but as oftentimes you see in passages in the prophets, not as much in Jeremiah as you'd like, there'd be these times of distress and despair through the word of prophecy that is kind of alleviated by the fact that God brings words of future hope that the final word is not death but life the final word is not despair but joy the final word is not condemnation but salvation and so we have in verse 14 another word from the Lord this whole matter of the poetry that you see in verse 7 to verse 13 now is alleviated a good bit by the prose that follows thus says the Lord concerning 
all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I've given my people Israel to inhabit. Again, Jeremiah was concerned about his neighbors in Anathoth. His neighbors were out for his life. His own citizens of his own city, his own town, were looking to put him to death. But the city of Judah, they had neighbors too. And they had neighbors that were most glad to see the discomfort that Judah experienced. They were most happy to see their land devastated. This again, it gave them opportunity to perhaps expand their own borders, gave them opportunity to utilize that land for their own trade purposes or whatever it would be that would be in their national interests. And God has a word for them. Just as Jeremiah might have a word for his neighbors in Anathoth, God has a word for the neighbors of Judah. He doesn't leave them out of the picture. And God says, don't, don't be all that prone to rejoice because your time's coming too. I mean, Babylonians now have their sights set upon Judah, but they're not going to leave Moab and Ammon and Edom and Egypt and Tyre. They're not going to leave them not dealt with. They want them part of their own empire as well. They're going to be subduing them. And so the Lord says, I'll plug them up from their land. They're going to get plucked up too. They're not going to be exempted from the Babylonian war machine. They're going to be affected too. Along with God plucking up the house of Judah from among them. And so you see, there were Judahites who in the light of the Babylonian invasion probably crossed the Jordan and looked to find refuge in Edom. Looked to find refuge in Moab and Ammon. And so they settled among them. Well, you know, they're, they're not safe. They're not safe. Just means they took refuge in another land. Again, their safety is found in Yahweh. Their protection is found in their God. Not by fleeing to another jurisdiction where they can be safe from what the other emperors of the earth are out to do. God says they'll be plucked up along with the Moabites, the residents of Judah that fled there. They'll be plucked up too. They'll be taken away. Many of them into captivity. Many of them will die by the sword. God will pluck them up. But that's not the last word. Again, God's going to pluck them up. God's going to destroy. God's going to overthrow. He's also going to build and he's going to plant. And though in the earlier chapters, until you get to 25, that's not the major emphasis. We have something of a, a bit of a taste. A bit of a taste of that coming display of divine restoration. Of God's power to restore his people. And not just his people, but to restore the nations of the world, their neighbors as well. And that's what the hope that ends this passage focuses upon. That God says, after I plucked them up, plucked up the neighbors, plucked up the Judahites among them, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. Again, the Judahites will come back to their heritage in the land, their portion, their inheritance in the land of Judah. And the people of Ammon will return to their their homes there. And the Moabites and the citizens of Tyre and Sidon will all return to their own land. 
And it will come to pass if they, that is these neighbors, these neighbors that surround Judah, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. Now you got to think that as uh, Judahites fled to go into Ammon, to go into Moab, they came and they brought their faith, as much faith as they had, and a lot of them had genuine faith, or maybe that was the onslaught of the Babylonians that brought many of them to turn to God, made them a chasten, the humble people. They turned back to their God. They really sought him in earnest. And in those places where they were relocated or dislocated, they spread the name of Yahweh. They began to speak of his promises. They began to speak of his faithfulness to his covenant. And even this judgment that the Babylonians was part of covenant faithfulness as part of what God said will happen if his people did not obey him. So they sought to teach others as the people in exile did, as Daniel did, as Ezekiel did. They tried to influence the people in the lands that they went to to settle down and to seek the prosperity of those lands and to speak the good of their neighbors and to glorify their God in the midst of a foreign land. It shall come to pass if these people from these foreign nations where God's people had settled, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, if they will say, this God that you speak of, this God that you worship, seems to be a God worthy to be known seems to be a God whose laws are right and good and just. If even as they're in a foreign land, they will come to hear and come to learn and come to diligently seek after the ways of my people and to swear by my name, God says, I will bring brace them in my covenant. He says, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, God is swearing an oath by his own life. God is giving not just a promise but an oath that says if these people will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name even as they taught my people to swear by Baal I mean that's what got the nation into hot water in the first place they learned the ways of the foreign nations but if now they come to learn the name of Israel's God and to swear by his name and to follow his paths then they shall be built up in the midst of my people they'll be part of my own people I'll embrace them as my own even though they were formerly idolaters even though they formerly taught my people the ways of the worship of Baal if they turn and they believe and they follow I will embrace them I will embrace them they will become part of my covenant Again, God's covenant with the nation was to the end that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God has many ways to accomplish that plan and purpose. And part of it were these captivities. Part of it were these exiles, the people of Israel going into foreign lands and setting up places of worship and setting up places where the scriptures were read. And people in those lands became God-fearers. And people in those lands came to hear the name of Israel's God. And that really did open up many doors to the gospel when Paul began his ministry to come to these foreign cities where synagogues had been built, where the law of God was read. That's where he first went to demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. And it was among these God-fearers that many of the first converts to Christianity came. God has his ways. 
of bringing to pass his promises and his covenant will and purpose that through his people all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's just a bit of a foretaste in terms of Jeremiah's promise, in terms of what God did in the Babylonian captivity, really setting up so much of the success of the apostolic mission of Paul to the Gentile nations through the synagogue system where the word of God was read and people came to faith as Christ was preached among those nations. But there is this but. The promise is good if embraced, but if any nation will not listen. They're hearing God's words through an exiled people who are called to honor the Lord in exile. I will make them my people if they follow me, if they swear by my name. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares Yahweh. In real sense, what would we expect? <laughs> I mean, these nations that taught Israel to not swear by the name of the Lord, but to swear by the name of Baal. Not to sacrifice to the Lord, but to sacrifice to Baal. And to think that God would have the compassion, and that God would have the mercy, he would have the, the wideness of heart and soul to receive such nations to himself. But what is, is required is to hear his words. What is required is a heart that will listen, a heart that will be instructed. You know, so much of what it means to be a Christian is just simply to recognize you're not in charge. You, you, you're not God. You need to bow the knee to his authority and give allegiance to his obedience and to render to him the praise and the worship and the honor that is deserving and that ought to be given its his due. And not to give God his due is to run afoul of his will, to run afoul of his purposes and to be under his judgment. That is to be under his judgment in the face of grace abounding. Grace abounding. Here's an Old Testament example of grace abounding to the chief of sinners. And yet if people won't hear his voice in the face of abounding grace, what is God to do but to leave them to the fruits of their own sins and transgressions? They will reap what they sowed. They will reap corruption. They will reap everlasting separation from his presence as the result of their own sins. Again, in the midst of all of this, what we're being taught over and over and over again that man's judgment is of his own making he himself has walked out of God's ways and chosen his own paths and determined in his own folly to be walking in, a, in opposition to his own interests living for his own desires he, will, he does run afoul of God who will bring judgment but yet, even in the face of man's effort to destroy himself, God continues to say, come to me. Continues to say, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn. Turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? God extends the hand of his grace, grace that abounds to the chief of sinners, and offers terms of abounding love, and abounding peace, and abounding joy in believing to all who will come to faith in him. Well, thus ends the 12th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. And it ends on a 
a happy note in the midst of the well-deserved judgments that the nation will face and the abounding pain that Jeremiah feels. There is the consolation in a God who understands what we're going through and a God who invests himself in his people. So he always speaks in these personal terms of my people, my house, my heritage. Who would not want to love a God like that? Who would not want to serve a God like that? He, he doesn't create us. He doesn't redeem us. That we should serve his interests. But then in a real sense he serves ours. He meets us in our neediness. And he abounds to, towards us in every good thing. He gives us joy and peace in believing. And whatever we give in return is hardly commensurate with what he gives in grace. It's hardly equal to what God and grace gives to his children. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your abounding grace. We're thankful that we know we deserve not the least of your mercies, and yet you give, not just adequately, but you give aboundingly. You give far and above what we ever could have asked or ever could have thought. And we're thankful for this portion of scripture that speaks of your own heart's concern and interest in your people, the way in which you've experienced far greater what loss means than Jeremiah ever could by the, by the evil workings of his neighbors. That Lord, you, you've seen the pain of the rejection of those you've loved and invested in, your nation, your people, your heritage. And Lord, you address us in those similar personal ways. And we pray we would be a people that ever respond, not unbelievingly, but believingly, gladly, joyfully, rendering to you the honor and worship that you deserve to receive, that we would live in the light of the Lord, we would live in the light of your compassion and of your grace and of your kindness and not incur wrath by our own willfulness and our own disobedience. We pray that you'd hear our prayers. We're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the privilege of coming aside from the um, hecticness and busyness of the week to give ourselves to a day of Sabbath rest in your presence, enjoying your presence, drawing near to you in worship. We pray that your blessing would be upon your people in all that is before us in the coming week. Help us to abound in in our lives of, of praise and worship and love as we seek to serve you and honor you in all of our ways in the week before us. So hear our prayers, bless your people as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.